Democrats take control of the Senate with senatorial wins in Georgia, Trump supporters break into the Capitol building as electoral votes were certified, and President Trump is officially banned from Facebook and Twitter. I am Eli Kelton, and this is the Teenager's Guide to Politics. It has been a tumultuous and painful two weeks since I've last recorded my podcast and it has broomed to the top and has manifested itself in Trump's Trump supporters storming the Capitol in chaos and without logical reasoning. And so before I begin and talk about that today, I wanted to talk about what occurred before and that was Georgia's senatorial races. And so Republican Governor Brian Kemp has been painfully bruised by the 2020 election cycle, even though he was on the ballot box. Um, in a state that has long been dem- dominated by Republicans, the Democrats have won Georgia's electoral votes for president in November and two U.S. Senate seats in a runoff election, defeating Kemp's hand-picked Senate appointee. Donald Trump has was furious at Kemp for resisting efforts to overturn Trump's election loss, vowed to oppose the governor's re-election next year. Even Trump loyalists are already working to recruit a primary challenger, However, Democrats who have gained strength in Georgia since Stacey Abrams' narrow 2020 loss to Kemp are spoiling for revenge. Quote, Governor Kemp, you're next, you in 2022, the Democratic Governors Association tweeted Wednesday as the upset victories of Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia Senate races came to light. The governor's political capital took a serious hit with the loss of Republican Senator Kelly Lauren Loeffler. A year ago, she chose the wealthy businesswoman and political novice to fill the seat vacant by retiring Senator Johnny Itzelkin, in part to help Republican win back support among suburban women. In doing so, he passed over more experienced contenders, including Trump's personal choice, former GOP representative Doug Collins. However, this gamble had failed, and the defeats of both Lofter and fellow Republican David Perdue handed in control of the U.S. Senate to Democrats. There are 50 United States Democratic Senators and 50 GOP Senators, and this will result in a tiebreaker by the Vice President, which is Kamala Harris, and that will result in a 51-50 majority. Quote, Brian Kemp is the governor of the Titanic, said Debbie Dooley, a president of the Atlanta Tea Party and Republican activist. Quote, his governorship hit an iceberg and it's going down. Dooley said she and other Trump supporters are recruiting candidates to challenge Kemp and other Republican officials deemed disloyal to Trump. Among them, Lieutenant Governor Goff Dugan, who repeatedly refused to make baseless claims that Trump had won the election, Secretary of State Brian Raffensperger, who rejected the president's plea to find more Trump votes in a record in a recorded phone call that became public. Some Republicans blamed Trump and his false claims of election fraud for hurting GOP turnout in the Senate runoff. A crowd attending Trump rally on the eve of the Senate runoffs erupted in sheer when the president promised to see Kemp defeated in 2022. Quote, I'll be here in about a year and a half campaigning against your governor, Trump said, I guarantee it. The strain on Kemp was on display Tuesday when the governor attended an election night event for the GOP Senate candidates before their defeats were sealed. Quote, this has been a tough time for our family for lots of reasons, Kemp told the crowd, which applauded his appearance. He said it wasn't just the Senate race, but also the coronavirus pandemic, volatile protests over racial injustice, and a personal tragedy that hit during the runoff campaign. Harrison Deal, a Loughner campaign worker who dated one of Kemp's daughters and grown close to his family, died in a highway crash in December. Kemp's wife and daughter dabbed at, at tears as he recalled the tragic loss of a young life way too soon. 
While Trump and others have named Collins as a potential GOP challenger for Kemp, the former congressman could also run for the Senate seat that Loughner lost. Warnock will be back on the ballot in 2022 after finishing the final year of Asik's second term. Among Democrats, Abrams is being closely watched to see if she will make a second run for governor after losing to Kemp by fewer than 55,000 votes in 2018. She spent the past two years working to register new voters and advocating for extended access to the ballot in a state that Republicans have controlled for roughly two decades. Abrams has been credited with paving the pathway for their Democratic victories in November and on Tuesday. Democrats' eye in the 2022 campaigns are expected to make start making announcements this year. Quote, you've got to give yourself an 18-month window, said Representative Callan Smirk of Columbus, the legislature's longest-serving Democrat. State Senator Jen Jordan, a Democrat who represents parts of Atlanta and the suburbs, have swung rapidly to her party, said the internal Republican jousting has obscured Kemp's other problems. Democrats are determined to make Kemp a pay a policy, a political price for COVID-19's impact on Georgia, seeing a recklessness, his unwillingness to impose a statewide mask mandate, and refusal to impose stronger restrictions on the hospitalization and deaths have escalated this winter. Quote, I'm sure it has not been fun being governor during a pandemic and the economy is not great, Jordan said. He's Quote, he's getting killed on the GOP side, but he'll have to answer for all this other stuff, too. Kemp will take center stage next week as Georgia's legislature opens, likely highlighting a relatively low unemployment rate, a string of industrial announcements, opposition to gangs and sex trafficking, and his plans for partial expansion of Medicaid. Ryan Mahone, a political consultant who worked for Kemp, said the governor's agenda is popular and he will be able to seize the spotlight. Quote, the session can't come at a better time, Maloney said. For the next three months, he gets to remind people he's governor. Mahoney said he will leave Democratic control of the White House of Congress will help bring Republicans back to Kemp, giving him a chance to reunite a fractured party by spearheading conservative opposition to Biden. Quote, it's going to be pretty bitter choice, Mahomes said. At some point, are you with us or are you with them? And this partisanship that's manifesting itself within the Republican Party is not an outlier. After after looking at all the elections since the inception of the country, the, the losing party typically has a quote-unquote identity crisis in which it starts to desperately grab at various political leaders and to see if they will be the new face of the party, if you will. This happened to the Democratic Party within 2016, which led to the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, the young Democratic and Democratic Socialist self-proclaimed. And this will ultimately lead to a more unified Republican Party after the kind of the self-break in the party, after one, they find their identity again because the results from the election were quite promising for Republicans in terms of minority voters. For example, in Florida, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, they saw an increase in minority voting for the GOP. And we do not know if, yet if this is because President Trump was on the ballot for the GOP. And if, let's say, Mitt Romney ran said, would they still vote for the GOP? I don't know. No one knows. And if this is true, and let's say the GOP does retain those minority voters for other candidates, then they have a 
possibility to creating a new coalition that will be able to rival the Democratic Party in terms of voter turnout. Anyways, so this election of Warnock and Ossoff is an interesting one because Warnock will be up for re-election as previously stated in 2022, and with his fairly narrow victory of just 1% over Loeffner. It could be he loses his Senate seat and therefore the GOP gains one seat in the election during this 2022 election. And therefore, basically snubs the, the President Joe Biden at the time of any legislative policies. And with the Democrats taking control of the House, all eyes have turned on to one man, one Democratic for, Democratic representative from West Virginia that has been credited with being a more conservative slash Democrat, and that senator is Joe Manchin. So the Democrats have delivered on a two-month-long electoral triumph after appearing to be on the verge of losing both the presidency and the Senate in the initial hours of the election results being announced on the 3rd of November. The party's fortune began to shift as the night progressed, and therefore had eventually led to Joe Biden's inauguration on the 20th of January that is upcoming. Democrats have reached the point in the Senate through a succession of small and previous victories over the last four years. Most evidently, in November, they were barely nearly, nearly lost one of the two Georgia seats that won this week. David Perdue, the Republican, who defeated Democratic John Ossoff, came within 0.3 percentage points, or 13,400 votes, from winning the 50% needed to vote on November 3rd and avoid a runoff against Ossoff. And this brings up an interesting point again, is that David Perdue was ahead of John Ossoff in the general election and was so close, as previously mentioned, to winning the senatorial race. But what changed in that period since the general election to the runoff election? What led to John Ossoff overtaking David Perdue? And I think you had to go look back at what occurred. The main thing that occurred was the passage of the coronavirus relief bill and how Donald Trump ended up tweeting the $2,000 relief package, which I think created this persona that the Republican Party did not deliver and help the average American as much as they could have. And this led many independents and Democrats to rally around John Ossoff, a relatively unknown figure. He is a son of a wealthy businessman and is a self-proclaimed quote-unquote socialist. So I'm, I'm not sure how he will be able to perform in the Senate, but it will be definitely an interesting process to overview. Um, from winning 50% on the vote on November 3rd and avoiding runoff against Ossoff. Now, that is a key point. If he would have won, excuse me, Purdue won, if Purdue won, then the GOP would be controlling the Senate right now, 51 to 49, with the relatively conservative slash Democrat Joe Manchin. So, and much of the policy proposals that Biden would have pursued if Purdue won, not Purdue, yes, Purdue won, then 
would like core packing and ending the filibuster i think those are still not going to happen because joe main Anchin has previously promised that he will not vote on any of those issues that's beside the point let me continue so according to the new york times the democrats also won crucial senate seats and choir victories during the late 2010 the senate is elected in three cycles every two years the democrats 50 seats were won across 2016 2018 and 2020 as senators served six-year terms in 2016 in new hampshire democratic maggie hansen beat the republican candidate kelly atton by 1017 votes with democrats also holding on to a closely fought seat in nevada in 2018 democrats then lost four seats lost four of their seats, but won two Republican seats in Arizona and again in Nevada, while also holding on to two critical red state seats in Montana and West Virginia. And this year's cycle, the party picked up Republican seats, one in Colorado and one again in Arizona, along with this week's two victories in Georgia. The key victories since 2016 have all added up over the years to give the Democratic party their ultra slim majority with both parties now holding 50 seats in the 100 seat chamber vice president kamala harris holds the casting vote emily has more than the meaning of the 50 50 split perhaps the most crucial storyline is the power of the 50th democratic senator for the biden administration to pass any bills it must retain the vote for all 50 democratic senators and the most rebellious Democratic senator is therefore arguably the most powerful figure in the chamber. If they do not want to vote for measure, it will not pass. No Republican, whether the mildly independent Lisa Murkowski in Alaska or soon-to-be-retired Pat Tomey in Pennsylvania, is likely to vote to the left of any Democrat. The 50th senator is most likely to be Joe Manchin, the Democrat who won in the deep red state of West Virginia in 2018. Excuse me. West Virginia, once a Democratic stronghold, is now a Republican stronghold and also center for political activism. In November, only Wyoming voted for Trump by a greater margin. Manchin, a former governor of the state, will soon be the only Democrat to hold statewide office there. Manchin is a far cry from a Sanders-Warren wing of the Democratic Party, both temperamentally and politically. As he recently quibbed in an interview, where I come from, if I come to work every day and you try to get me fired, you're going to talk in the parking lot after work. That's where I come from. In one campaign ad, he carried a rifle into the woods and fired shots into Barack Obama's cap-and-trade bill. He won an election prom- promising West Virginians he'd get the federal government off our backs and out of our pockets while protecting the right to bear arms. It is Manchin rather than, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who will shape the legislative policy of the Biden administration. Biden will, as with Barack Obama and Trump, will also make policies through executive order, but that process is invariably short-lived. Executive orders can also be overturned by presidential successors, as many of Trump's orders will be by the Biden administration on Inauguration Day. Manchin confirmed that many of the Trump's cabinet appointees, as well as the Supreme Court justices, including Brett Kavanaugh, some of his positions aligned with the outgoing president. He has long been against major foreign troop developments, such as the Afghanistan war, as he put in 2011. Quote, we cannot longer afford to rebuild Afghanistan and America. We must choose, and I choose America. He also backed Trump's hawkish approach to trade with China. He supported the president's border wall in Mexico and, and last year backed the re-election campaign of Susan Collins, the recently re-elected senator from Maine, Republican senator from Maine, and a close legislative ally. Ousting Collins was a major Democratic aim in 2020. He opposed same-sex marriage as well. Manchin, as he says himself, is, Amer- is an American centrist. His views align 
much more closely with the Democratic Party of the 20th century than its millennial variant. Radical ideas on the left, from granting statehood to Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to packing the Supreme Court, ending the filibuster. A way of blocking legislation will come up again against an obstacle at the door of Joe Manchin's Senate office. As Manchin himself said in a recent interview, quote, we do not have some crazy socialist agenda and we do not believe in defunding the police, end quote. And I think what you'll see here is the young radical democratic base will begin to pressure Joe Mnuchin, excuse me, and will also be attacked necessarily by the media, which will be interesting to see and how he'll be able to stand up to that. As Sean Trent, a longstanding U.S. journalist for Real Care Politics, put it yesterday, quote, a lot of the apocalyptic, joyous rhetoric on both sides of Georgia is likely going to run into the reality of Joe Manchin sometime in early February. Manchin will ensure Biden can appoint his own cabinet and place judges on the nation's court. He is also likely to back Biden's spending plans, which can be passed under 50% reconciliation bills. But Manchin is adamant that he will not vote to end the Senate filibuster on basic legislation. The filibuster rule allows a minority block of 41 senators to prevent legislation from passing. The majority party needs 60 to end the closure and move to leg the legislation forward. The Democrats alone only have 50 votes, which will prevent much of their major stru structural change to U.S. politics sought by the left and progress on long-pressing issues such as the background check for gun owners. In 2013, Manchin himself led the Senate legislation on background checks after the Sandy Hook shooting, but the legislation, despite winning 54 votes, fell short of the 60 required to be passed in the law. Nevertheless, Manchin believes losing the filibuster will reduce the Senate to little more than a glorified House. So long as he does, there is likely to be a hard cap on Biden's ability to reshape the United States of America. And that is a crucial aspect that we need to analyze before Biden's uh, administration. With Senator Manchin in a seat at the Senate, the 50-50 majority that the main media is pressing seems to be a bit of a mirage that people will fall for. As you can, if you've turned on the cable news, you'll see that all of the political pundits and quote-unquote experts, they say that the Democratic Party now has control of the United States like no other before. And what you see traditionally in politics is a pendulum swing of ideas. And this occurred to the Republican Party too in 2016. When Trump promised to restructure the Affordable Care Act, the Republican Party controlled both the House and the Senate and the executive branch. And what is interesting is that despite having a majority in all of this, the centrist senators from the Republican Party, like John McCain, prevented this from happening. And I am highly skeptical that Joe Manchin will be any different from a John McCain. I would say that they are very similar, that they both are older gentlemen and have been part of the 20th century kind of vision of America. And so that will be an interesting development to see what occurs. And so I wouldn't be too pressed and too manipulated by the media to say the Democratic Party has absolute control now. There's always these checks and balances within this, the American government structure to prevent even a majority party from controlling the governmental process without the minority's uh, approval. 
And what you can also see is during the midterm elections, just as what happened in 2018, a Republican resurgence. Now, I think this resurgence has been hindered by recent developments of President Trump and the conduct in which he's acted. But I would say that the Republican Party has a possibility of realigning itself, needing this reality check of being losing two incumbent senators from Georgia, our traditionally Republican stronghold, in order to realign itself and be able to kind of evaluate its goals in the coming future. And also a side note before I get into the second segment, an interesting development that will occur is the lasting legacy that President Trump had on the Supreme Court. So right now, the Republican Party has a 6-3 majority within control of the Supreme Court. Now that's interesting because there has never been a time in which the Supreme Court has been as ideologically bound to the mainstream public. Alexander Hamilton in the country's inception founding, it he famously said that the Supreme Court was quote unquote the weakest branch. But due to the legislative pushes by John Marshall and judicial review implementation, it has actually become one of the strongest branches that can override any two branches decisions. And with Trump's appointments, will they start acting on purely ideological bounds? I am not sure. But it will be interesting to see how the Biden administration begins to plan and work around the conservative majority court. And now onto the news that has sent a shockwave through political the political atmosphere, and that is the storming of the United States Capitol by Trump supporters. And so let's look at the progression of how this happened. So hours before the Make America Great Again marchers overran Congress, there was only a sparse crowd outside the building waving flags and signs, huddled against the cold winter winds and praying that Donald Trump's fate would change that day. While most Trump supporters gathered down by the lawn in front of the White House where the president was set to speak at 11 a.m., a small group had congregated by the Capitol at around 9 a.m. Some were there, they said, to hold the line against Congress certifying Joe Biden's win that day, even though it wouldn't work. Some were there to in intimidate lawmakers, even though most initially skirted the protesters. Some were there to storm the building, even though rows of fences and guards at first kept them at distance. They were there because maybe, just maybe, that there would be a miracle that occurred that day. Quote, we the people need to be in that building, said Bill and Murphy, a Christian preacher from Ohio, gesturing to the Stokic Capitol Police standing behind the metal barricades. He also has, has been leading prayers all morning through a megaphone, telling the crowd to have faith and stay in front of the Capitol and wait for the rest of the pro-Trump Trump, pro -Trump movement to show up. Nearby, a man mediated in a cross-legged lotus position has his eyes closed in solidarity. Quote, we patriots ought to be in that building, Dernafia, excuse me, added. That building belongs to we the people. They work for us, and here we are, barred to the point that we can't even get on the property within 120 yards. At around 2 p.m., Dunphy got his rich. The marchers showed up. The barricades broke. The building 
was stormed. Lawmakers shuttered in place. Armed guards barricaded the house floor and pointed guns at the door. The crowd, once in the hundreds in the early months, swelled to tens of thousands, exalting the Capitol protesters. Trump sports some armed in ill-fitted Kevlar and waving every b- brand of flag grew furious and the police were trying to control the crowd. And circulating through the crowd was an instance that the Capitol was for th- from then and them alone. A video circulated on Twitter showing hundreds of Trump protesters breaking down a barricade at the back of the Capitol building, chanting and marching toward the doomed complex, and rumors ripped through the crowd about the breach, and people started sketching they do the same. Why should we listen to law enforcement, one asked. Hundreds of people and soon thousands started pressing forward, forward, and forward past the barricades, trampling over the abandoned structure erected by the Biden's inauguration on January 20th, they broke up and swarmed around the sides where the Capitol Police had been trying to keep out reporters, confronting officers who were trying to hold them back. They fantasized about breaking into the building themselves. But however, they did soon. The small contingent of Capitol Police, once cheerfully guarding this entrance and politely pointing Trump spoilers to the bathroom, was soon overwhelmed by waves of flag-bearing protesters, though they had earlier thanked the officers for their service. The crowd began to turn on the police. Crowds became gathered around officers demanding that they let them in the into the streets, up the lawn, and onto the balcony. And here's also another interesting psychological phenomenon that is occurring. It's called herd mentality. Usually when you're by yourself or in very limited sized groups, such as like two to three people, you act in a logical manner. You're able to discuss and have dialogue between individuals and be able to act in a coherent manner as we are meant to do and be able to have a civil dialogue. However, once that group begins starts to swell past a certain point where you start to become quote unquote the cog in the machine and where you feel as though you're a part of this living organism that is beyond yourself, you start to act in irrational manners and be influenced by the majority of the group. And this is what happened. I'm sure most of these individuals were free thinking and were able to logically think this out. However, once this group swelled to be a, point, a certain point and started to act in a violent manner, they thought of themselves as these, as these quote-unquote bearers of freedom that would march up the Capitol steps and stop the count and allow President Trump to win a, sec- to win a second term. And this is just purely fictional basis thinking and it surely shows that the mob mentality is harmful and that we must be able to retain ourselves and be able to have these ideas and logics and be able to think for ourselves from at a certain point anyways angry rumors ripped through the protesters some of them waving blue lives matter flag that the police had tear gas which officers later deployed in the capital rotunda outside one tattooed man ripped his shirt off and told a small group of people that he had been hit in the head i don't care who they are but they got the badge he said resentfully later upon hearing that one of the riders inside the building had been shot a man outside holding three trump flags on a massive pole said it won't be the last he finally said all of the overheated military rhetoric that flowed through the MAGA movement suddenly felt different. At the Capitol, more mere hours before the idea of such a mob seemed impossible. Scattered Trump supporters overwhelmingly maskless dotted the entire Capitol complex, gazing at the marble dome and booing at black SUV that pulled up in front of the Capitol. Like their MAGA brethren down at the eclipse in front of the White House, they traveled far 
near from far and near disregarding pandemic protocols to make it to the capital in time to disrupt certification lisa hayes who was who described herself as a political performance artist and complained about her social media handles being banned had flown in front of from sacramento days before she showed up in a instagram worthy outfit a white tulum ball gown with ballot labeled stolen printed on her skirt touting a loudspeaker playing we're not going to take it quote i'm here because this is where the vote's going to take place and where the support needs to be she said behind wrap around sunglasses that were titled with band across the rim quote i really don't know anyone at the ellipse we will all need to be here Nick Sari, an actor from Burbank, California, was there for a similar reason. It's a historic day, and I want to be here for it. Sincerely, best known for her recor- a recurring role in the, in the FXO, Justified. Quote, I want to witness what happens, and if there is the last day of the Republic, I want to be here to see it. Notably, the crowd was split over whether Congress is going to be able to overturn the election, or as they in- in- initiated, stop the election from being stolen. Asked what he hoped to accomplish on Wednesday, Dan Ellison, 53, a roofing salesman who drove in from Charlotte, North Carolina, was blunt. Nothing. He said, he was here to support my president. That's it. Kelly Wolf, 58, a salesman from northern Minnesota, was still hopeful but also um, pessimistic. Quote, I hope God comes down and switches stuff around. Something's going to happen. It's going to be big today. Wolf claimed Trump probably won all 50 states. I think people are blinded to it. There's too much corruption. A notable number of protesters wore bulletproof vests and helmets, flash, flashlights attached to their brims, even at 10 a.m. in broad daylight. Some identified themselves as normal citizens, nervous about Antifa, the loose collection of far-left activists. Quote, I've heard it's a little crazy, so I wanted to wear a vest, said Josh Welch, 35, a North Carolina electrician. His armor was emblazoned with liberty or death. Some, however, were members of the Proud Boy, a far-right male organization known for its street brawls. For once, the members were not wearing their normal black and yellow regalia, which they often do while providing security for pro-Trump events. Quote, We do not want to blend in a little more. And Astra, South Florida resident who declined to give his last name, guarding Latinos for Trump gathering outside the Senate office complex, he was still clad in black body armor with a GoPro camera strapped to his chest and patches a Blue Lives Matter and a camo-colored Star of David velcroed to his desk. His vest, excuse me. Other Proud Boys, he said, were wearing normal MAGA clothing. And this whole development is an extremely disturbing development in American politics. I recently watched a documentary called The Social Dilemma, and it was talking about tech executives and their role in the shifting and the paradigm of how social interaction is carried out in the world nowadays. It has said that the Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, any social media platform algorithm has started to provide a unique tailor-made feed of what you see. And this has resulted in extreme hyper-partisanship within the American public. Now people, both on the liberal and conservative side of politics, are able to see 24-7 news slash conspiracy theories that they believe in and and what motivates their cause. Never truly in the history of this planet have people had access to so much information tailored to them regardless of facts and logic. 
And I think this event is a manifestation of itself that when individuals harbor intent and motives that are constructed within their own reality, because that's what it is, it's their own reality, their newsfeed that they receive from these algorithms in order to keep them hooked to the device as long as possible is what people agree with. Because if an individual does not agree with a statement, then you'll simply read it maybe for 50 seconds and then click out of it and be done. But a, a news article that resonates with someone is read through its entirety and therefore takes longer and therefore leads to the part part participant being attracted to the platform for longer, which raises revenue for the company. That's the ultimate goal. And this is interesting because with the storming of the capital, these, I guarantee you, all these individuals were somehow connected, not necessarily with each other, but with the same media output and news feed that they received. And this is true also for the liberal pro protests slash riots that have occurred. It's just that everyone is starting to be able to be to have this tailor-made aspect to themselves that reinforces this cycle, this confirmation by a cycle within the human psyche, and it makes them feel as though they are 100% right all the time, and the other side is comprised of a bunch of lunatics. And I think this is really dangerous, actually, because I, I don't think it's going to get any better. I truly don't. I don't think that America is going to have this aha moment and be able to snap out of it because people are creatures of habit and habits are extremely hard to break, and especially when you believe in the cause. Because without a doubt, I guarantee you that the Trump supporters that showed up to the Capitol believed with every fiber in their body that Trump won the election and there was a secret plot that to undermine President Trump. I, I guarantee you that there hasn't been any evidence of widespread voter fraud. Sure, there's been appearances of maybe like 100 and 200 vote ballots missing, but that does not affect the election results. And the whole idea and what the whole march that we saw yesterday was a scary reality that we now face in this country. Alrighty, moving on to our final bit of news for this podcast episode, and that is, of course, the Twitter and Facebook bans of President Trump from their sites. So on Friday, Twitter and Facebook announced that they would be banning President Trump permanently from their sites, a punishment for his role in inciting violence at the U.S. Capitol this week, robbing him of the infamous megaphone he used to communicate directly with more than 88 million supporters and critics. The move amounted to a historical rebuke for a president who has used the social networking site to fuel his rise to political prominence. Twitter has been Trump's primary communication tool to push policies, drive news cycles, fire officials, spread falsehoods, savage opponents, and praise allies for the past four years. And what's interesting is that there is an argument from the his son, Don Jr., that, quote-unquote, free speech is dead, and that the American system of democracy is starting to tear away at its fabric. But you have to remember that 
Twitter and Facebook are privatized corporations that do in fact, under section code 230, have the ability to ban members that are not in compliance with their policy. And it's as simple as that. It's not necessarily the abandonment of free speech. President Trump, for all he is worth, he could have an own social media platform where he expresses his views. It's just that Twitter is not forced to manifest and be able to bring out his message that Trump tweets. It's, it's That's the reality of it. So a defiant Trump lashed out in response late Friday, accusing Twitter in a statement of having coordinated with the Democrats and the radical left to remove his count. He threatened regulation, promising a big announcement to come, and said he is looking at the possibility of building out our own platform in the near future. The official account for the presidency at POTUS also tweeted that message, although the posts were quickly taken down by Twitter. Twitter had resisted taking action against Trump for years, even as critics called on the company to suspend him, arguing that a world leader should be able to speak to his or her audience, citizens, unfeathered. But Trump, Trump's escalating tweets casting doubt on the 2020 election, the riots at the U.S. Capitol, his comments helped inspire led the company to reverse course. Twitter specifically raised the possibility that Trump's recent tweets could mobilize his supporters to commit acts of violence against President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, an analysis that experts saw as a majority expansion in the company's approach to moderating harmful online content. Its actions meant that Trump's tweets disappeared from the site, removing the catalog of his thoughts except for those preserved by researchers and other documentarians. The move was especially remarkable for a company that once called itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. Many observers noted that this most aggressive enforcement action in the Twitter's history came in the week that political power shifted decisively in Washington towards Democrats who have long demanded greater policing of hate speech and violent talk on social media and away from a president and a party whose long had been made efficient use of the more free-willing policies of the past. Now that brings up an excellent point. Let's say that the Republican Party retained control of the Senate and President Trump won the 2020 election. Would Twitter have done the same action on banning President Trump? I don't know. That will be a question for you to think about and answer. Quote, it took blood and glass in the halls of Congress and a change in the political winds for the most powerful tech companies in the world to recognize at last, the last possible moment that the profound threat of Donald Trump, Senator Richmond Blumenthal, a Democratic from Kentucky, a longtime critic of tech company policies, Twitter cited two, two Trump tweets one stated that 75 million who voted for him were American patriots who will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any shape or form. He then announced that he would not go to Biden's swearing inauguration later that month. In a blog post, the company said the two message violated its policies against glorification of violence since they could inspire others to replicate violent acts that they took place at the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. According to Twitter, his second tweet could be read by followers as an encouragement to commit violence during the inauguration, which would be a safe target as he will not be attending. In doing so, Twitter joined Facebook in punishing the president in the waning hours of his first term. Facebook said Tuesday in his suspension is indefinite, lasting at least the next two weeks, citing a familiar belief that the risks are too simply too great at the moment of transition for the country. Both tech giants previously joined Google-owned Twitter in removing or limiting access to 
Trump's post, including a video he shared later this week that once again advanced widely disproven falsehoods about the validity of the 2020 vote election. Alrighty, that is all that I have for you guys today for this podcast episode. I am sure there will be developing news and stories the next time that I record a podcast. In the meantime, have a great rest of your day, anywhere, wherever you are. And this is Eli Kelsen from the Teenager's Guide to Politics.